Hello, everybody. This is Barry Feeker, Executive Director of the Topeka Rescue Mission. You're listening to our community, our mission on March the 15th, 2022. Good morning, Mary Crable. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. <laughs> We're taking a little break from this little series we had about uh, the transitions going on in Topeka <laughs> Rescue Mission because we have a really special guest today. We do. That uh, was in Topeka, and we did not want to pass up this opportunity to visit with her. Exactly. And so uh, kind of a prelude to that, Miriam, you've yeah. worked um, at the Rescue Mission for a number of years mm-hmm. now. Now you are in charge of, not in charge of, but working with the team that does our rapid rehousing. Yes. And um, and you've been director of United Way here in California. Yes. And so you know the poverty end of things. But uh. one of those things that's really um, stands out in, in a great need is kids who are coming out of foster care. Oh, absolutely. To me, that's one of the most, uh, I think I would say one of the most tragic things that I think our country is not really on top of, Mm -hmm. that we have children that we were caring for, we were charged with caring for them, and then we release them out into the community with nothing. And to me, it's heartbreaking. So I am so excited about our guest today and and hearing all about this because I think it's such an issue. It is. What are some of those things that you know are problematic with kids who are in foster care that aren't ready to leave foster care because the system's not there? What have you seen? They're just really not ready. Like they they don't have a clue on what even to do because, you know, if they've been fortunate enough to be in a stable setting where they haven't been jumping around a lot, they may have received some life skills kind of thing. But for the most part, they're being released into the world, not knowing how to find an apartment, fill out an application, all of those things that for someone like me who grew up with two parents uh, that was well, they didn't kick me out at 18, you know, mm-hmm. they kept going with me so that I could call them up and say, how do I do this? How do I do this? And these kids then become so vulnerable, yeah. you know, and they are just prime targets for bad people and bad things to happen to them. And I just can't imagine what that loneliness must feel like. Amen. It breaks Amen. my heart. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have somebody who's an expert in this area in a lot of different ways. Uh, Lynn Johnson, who is the uh, president of All In Fostering Futures. Welcome to our community, our mission. Thank you so much for having me. And this is a topic that, oh my gosh, we could go on all day. <laughs> yeah. We could. Lynn, you've got a nonprofit that you founded. Um, and I noticed uh, on uh, one of the taglines here, All In Fostering Futures, because everybody deserves somebody. That's right. That's a pretty strong statement there, and, and it, it's, it, it's true. That came from one of the kids who aged out of foster care who had spent 18 years and had 18 moves. <sighs> and when he asked me to do a nonprofit, he said, please, Lynn, everybody deser- deserves somebody. Yeah. And that's where it started from. And we're noticing other nonprofits. We've said, will you use this? So others are picking this up. Everybody deserves somebody. That's, that's a, you know, our, our one of the things we keep emphasizing here at Topeka Rescue Mission is everybody matters. So it's along those same lines that, you know, when, when Christ was asked what the greatest commandment was, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself, meaning everybody matters. Everybody deserves somebody. And that's what you've done. Well, Lynn, you've done a lot of things uh, that have been uh, combating poverty. Um, uh, foster care issues and so forth, and now this nonprofit. But um, I want to 
I want you to just kind of tell us a little bit about your background here, but one of the things you did is you worked in, as the Assistant Secretary of the Administration for Children and Families in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That's kind of up the food chain there a little bit, right? A little bit. So uh, <laughs> talk about talk about um, how you got that appointment um, and what that did, and maybe a little bit before that, since then, and, and a little bit more of what you're doing today. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me here today. I love sharing this journey so that others want to get involved and help take care and love up kids. The little bit about me, I started for 18 years as a probation and parole officer. Okay. And one of on my, the ground. On the <laughs> ground. And one of my guys came in after spending several weeks working with social services before it was human services and said, please let me go back to prison. I'll use drugs to get a dirty urine and I, I need to go back. And my question was, Why? why? You're doing so well. Mm -hmm. And he said, I just spent three weeks with social services. I need some time to clear my head. And that made me realize that the helpers in the country, all the rules and regulations make vulnerable people have to jump through so many things. Mm -hmm. They'd rather be in prison to clear their head than have to jump through all these hoops just to get a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. And that started my journey. Actually, I was then asked by a governor to work in the human service world. I said, Yes, put my yes on that table, and then moved forward, left working the gov with the governor, and I get a call from him that said, there's a county that's hiring a director. Why don't you see if you could use your Christian values to make a difference? They'll never hire me. And he, he said, um, you're just chicken. <laughs> that didn't work very well for me. So I applied because I knew they'd never hire me, and I can then not be chicken. They hired me. Mm. So I, had, I remember saying to the staff the first day, if you can treat and, and help offenders, you can help everybody. Mm -hmm. And they rolled their eyes. And they said, oh, for a mom of teenagers, that was really hard. Yeah. Going from there, I decided I pulled all the county, it was a county human services together, and said, let's eradicate poverty. And someone actually popped off and said, so you want to prove Jesus wrong? Because he says there, was, there will be poverty always. I said, no, but I think he'd like us trying. Yeah, sure. So we actually pulled together and created what's called the Jefferson County Prosperity Project. Eradicating poverty didn't have a good letters to put together. <laughs> and we brought in people and said, do you want to get out of poverty? And it was homeless individuals. It was people that had been generational poverty and wrapped around our Head Start that everybody in Head Start is 100% of poverty. Mm -hmm. And over five years, we had about 1,300 families successful, out of poverty, livable wages in their own homes, moms were and dads working toward their education, kids to diploma, which is our goal. All kids to diploma, all parents to self-sufficiency, as defined by them, what that looks like, not by me. Mm -hmm. So we've been really successful. In the middle of that, I but, get a... Let me, let me pause on that. Okay. That, that, that outcome is phenomenal. Really, it's it's really amazing. Good. So what's happening to that program now that you, since you had that kind of success rate? It's still functioning. COVID really put a dent in mm -hmm. some things, mm -hmm. but it's still um, moving forward. We did not use any case management. We used coaches, and we had four coaches. That's all we've ever had, mm -hmm. and it's hard to get staffing right now. Even the coaches have right. been either getting different jobs or not working with us anymore, and without the coaches, we can't be successful. So post-COVID, which we think maybe we're getting there, <laughs> right? maybe with a prayer and more <laughs> prayer, that could be revived again. And maybe taken beyond where you established that. Wouldn't and that be fantastic? Yes, needs to be. We've had a few states ask me if we could replicate it there. My director, 
who ran that program for me and then I left mm-hmm. was the magic and the faith and the joy that mm-hmm. kept that going. Mm-hmm. She is amazing. But we really did, as every, every Wednesday, once a month, we had dinners together mm-hmm. with all the families that want to get out of poverty. And I had people who literally would say, yeah, right, you're another program. Mm-hmm. And I, there's only one time that I thought, mm, that person's not going to be able to make it mm-hmm. because they were so angry and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. not believing that things could work. Yeah. But as we moved forward around that table, we always had everybody say, tell us something that you're really proud of today, mm-hmm. which we found out there was almost nothing when we started. Mm-hmm. And the kids would say, I sat still for one hour in kindergarten today. And the parents would say, I actually am going to get a dental appointment. I scheduled it Mm -hmm. because dentists and doctors is not what the families were doing. Mm -hmm. And they'd go around the table and say what they're proud of. Kids would go with the nannies and do reading and fun things. And then the parents would say, what's the barrier? What's the challenge? And they helped each other. Mm-hmm. And I, myself, my staff, we would sit back and watch. So kind of I like call, a team together, weren't they? Yeah. They, yeah. Would, they created the community. Mm-hmm. And I put duct tape over all my staff's mouths because as, <laughs> for me as a parole officer, I tell you what to do or you go to prison, right? Mm-hmm. Or, and, and so for social workers, we believe we have the answers. Mm-hmm. But really, the staff have the answers, mm-hmm. or not the staff, the, the families. Yes. And so when, we, when I say getting to self-sufficiency, to get to success as defined by them. I really mean that. Mm -hmm. So their goal might be just one step. I'll tell you a quick um, story on that, and you've probably seen this. When I asked a mom why she was wanting to be in this voluntary program at the beginning, she said, because I want life better for my kids than for myself. Mm -hmm. When I said, so what about you? She goes, what? Mm -hmm. And it was silent. Mm -hmm. And then she said, no one's ever asked me about me before. Mm -hmm. She said, I want to be on the show The Biggest Loser. And all I thought was, I have no way to do that. But I said, D- let me dig deeper. Why? She said, I'm very overweight. And I walk up steps to the third floor in the project housing. My mom looked like me when I was a kid, and everybody made fun of me. My kids are getting ready to go into kindergarten and first grade, and I don't want them to be made fun of like me. Mm-hmm. So I called the mayor because this was the whole community involved. I said, I need free child care at a rec center with a free personal trainer. <laughs> Done. He gave it to us. She started happiest as can be. Well, the personal trainer was a former Marine. And after about three weeks, then I got a phone call and it was all four-letter words and she wasn't too happy and this is not good. And fo- what we found out was that she had, had been assaulted. Mm-hmm. Never dealt with it. This guy pushing her was scaring her and triggering her. And so the mayor called and said, I guess the project isn't working. And I said, yes, it actually is. Because of that, we were able to get her into counseling. He found out that she had diabetes and got her into nutrition classes. And so as she continued to move forward, in spite of that first hiccup, we, um, I watched her lose weight. She beat me in a 5K. She lost 150 Whoa. pounds. Wow. And well, it's not saying much to beat me in a 5K, but, but, <laughs> but she, she did. One. <laughs> I know. And then she she um, designed her own bachelor's degree and got it. She wow. it was human services with advocacy and something else that the local university let her do. And then she did her master's. And then we hired her at human services. And had she not done it her way, losing weight mm-hmm. first. Moving forward with confidence, she would she would not be where she is today. Mm-hmm. But we had to say, 
your way, your success. Second thing she did with this is her kids were two boys, rambunctious boys, and the teachers kept saying, you're just a really bad parent. You don't know how to parent. You're a low-income parent, right? Those Mm -hmm. kind of things. And she said, please just test them. I think they're gifted. They would not support her on that. So we raised the funds to support getting them tested. They both skipped two grades. So they ended up in a gifted school. They play every kind of any uh, guitar, drums, fiddle, everything you can imagine. And they also sing and they are wanting to be aeronautical engineers. So (laughs) when you see the start of that, we broke the cycle and the kids are now doing well. She is proud of herself. She came out to D.C. to see me when I was, um, she loved President Trump, so I had an opportunity to bring someone out, and I, she got to see her hero, and then she is continuing to do well. Wow. But that's how you eradicate poverty one person at a time. Well, and, and, and you, you, you didn't give up when it didn't fit the mold or the original plan. Yeah. Um, that plan, um, God had a plan for the plan, but it wasn't the plan that was laid out in the beginning. That's right. And so you said, okay, we're going we're gonna to adjust. We're going to learn and adapt, and that's what you did, and that's what we fail to do so oftentimes in programs. And so, uh, sorry to to kind of rabbit trail with you on that, but I wanted to hear about that poverty piece you were you were explaining to kind of your journey here. So, go ahead and go back to that. But I think what you just shared with us is phenomenally important that we could spend a lot of time learning from you on this. But yeah, go ahead and, and catch us up. So then the next step was I got a call from the White House asking if I'd like to run human services for the country, get to the same kind of outcomes. I was a very outspoken person about too many rules and regulations that keep people Mm -hmm. in the book instead Mm -hmm. of getting to outcomes and success instead of just compliance. And after a lot of prayer with my family and my husband and the kids and I said, put my yes on the table again and moved to the district, learned how to live in an urban setting, had my own apartment, ran a huge agency for the country in the middle of all the things that happened between the Unaccompanied Children Program and the, and the surges at the border, which was under me, Office of Trafficking and Persons and the human trafficking mm-hmm. that was happening and the protests that were happening and then COVID that was happening. I joked that if anybody had said that was your job description before I took it, that <laughs> yes might have been a no, but it was a right place, right time. The Lord had put me there. Mm-hmm. It was a prayer decision, and I think truly it was a prayer God's will, yeah. God's way, yeah. and God's timing. You got to see such a huge picture by being in that position. Huge the picture. responsibilities, I can only imagine yeah, how enormous right. that would feel. Um, but you said yes, and God has uh, shown you many things, but he's fine-tuned you in your mission coming out of that. Absolutely. I knew it took me a long time to get confirmed. And um, I was one of the early people that was nominated, but one of the later people to finally get through the Senate. And when I got in, there were two and a half years left, and I wanted to do something that I know, no matter who the president was, would make a difference for the country, Mm -hmm. serving my country well. And I thought of three things. One was the human trafficking. That's my passion is to prevent that and to really help stop that Mm -hmm. that terrible, Mm -hmm. terrible harm that comes to both boys and girls. And then the rules and regulations, which isn't really exciting, but... Mm -hmm. 68% 68% of the time my staff were spent, were doing paperwork mm-hmm. and the rest was looking people in the eyes. And I, I'm always saying faces, not cases. And they're like, when? Mm. Yeah. And so that was a big deal to me. And it was a big deal to President Trump. So I really, really had the support 
of reducing red tape from government. And the last piece I looked at, um, we were already doing on the front end of child welfare, 62% of kids are removed because of consequences of poverty. Mm-hmm. 62%. That's a lot of kids that are in the child welfare system because, because of the system deems their parents not able to take care of their neglectful. basic needs. Neglect. Okay. And mm-hmm. neglect is defined different in every state. Mm-hmm. But mom loses her job. She's about to lose her house. She gets depressed. She starts taking substances. She's mm-hmm. just really down. And then somebody calls a hotline, and then the hotline, they say, okay, it's time. Um, you, you're not taking care of your children well, and then you lose your children. Well, then it, the mom just spirals, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. So, And one young boy told me he was eight years in the system because mom couldn't buy a mattress. I'm sure there was more to that, I would hope. But those are the kind of things that are fixable by community. When a community knows someone's having a hard time, when the churches get out of the four walls and do community out in that area, they can wrap around those families. They can wrap around mom. Maybe she just needs a meal made for her, and she says, oh, I've got help. Maybe the kids could go stay with someone and be safe for a while before the child welfare hotline gets called. All of those things are what causes that 62%. We reduce that even by half because we get the community into the community. Mm -hmm. We seriously have a really doable child welfare caseload. But then a friend of mine said, so what are you doing, Lynn, about those that are in the system already? And so I did the numbers, and there were 126,000 children whose parental rights were already terminated, so they weren't going home, and or they had an adoption plan already, meaning they aren't going home. And of that 126,000, 52%, half of them, are in the home that wants to adopt them, but there hasn't been time to get the paperwork or the court documents done. 50%. Mm -hmm. So that's a concern. But if you're reducing the number coming in, you should have more time to do the paperwork for those going out. So we started talking about that. And of that 126,000, 20,000 age out, leave the system going to nowhere, as you said. And that worried me. But if we take care of the 126,000, you don't have 20,000 aging out. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a statistic. Approximately each child that ages out, 20,000 every year, costs long-term over a lifetime Mm $300,000 of cost to the taxpayer. If we can take that by 20,000 a year, you are spending billions of dollars Mm -hmm. for something that could be just $1,000 to fix. Yeah. So as we're talking that about that, that speaks. well, if you don't mm-hmm. have any emotion to this, that will speak uh-huh. to you right, in a different right. way. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that, that's where I landed was I've got staff who are doing the front end. I'm going to take on this back end. So I went to every governor in the country, started doing it in person. And every time I met with the governor, I said, will you pull kids who have aged out together so I can do a panel and ask them questions? Because the kids will tell you. I'll tell you whatever you want to hear while I'm still in the system because I don't want to get moved again. I don't want any Mm -hmm. retribution. I don't Mm -hmm. want to be afraid. But when I'm out, I can tell you anything I want to tell you. Uh And so I met with aged out kids all over the country, and then COVID hit. And so I got the last governors through phone calls or Zoom. Mm -hmm. 46 governors are all in for children to focus on those two pieces. In the first year, we went from 126,000 kids waiting to 123,000. Okay, not bad for the first year, and we didn't have all the governors yet. The next year, I'm already at home, and I get the data from the feds. 
we went from 123 to 117 during COVID. Wow. Wow. So that's exciting. That's really exciting. The other piece was the front end went down. Now, of course, people might say, well, that's because there weren't caseworkers working or because of COVID or this. So next year will be, if people are still focusing on this, maybe will be our tell as to whether this is working. But already I see the numbers. I'll brag on two. Oklahoma's down to 400 and some kids waiting. Arkansas is down to 400 and some kids waiting. And they hired a person, and they call it Project Zero, to get to zero waiting kids. Mm -hmm. New Hampshire got to 36. Now, they're very small. Mm -hmm. But 36 waiting kids, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. On the other side, we have states where it's just blowing up because they Mm -hmm. shut their courts down and those kind of things. So as we, I'm going around the country now to ask people to be all in for kids. We had staff in India, and they were asking us why we were helping them with their orphanages when our system in the United Mm. States was messed up. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me to say, (laughs) we need to be all in for kids. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so we started our all in for kid campaign. And then I came home. I got to digress again. Um, How you went into this huge system on a national level, you were directing HHS. Mm And seeing all the problems, how did you not lose your hope that this could ever be fixed? I mean, you're kind of an incurable optimist, I'm sure, but <laughs> but uh, how did you how did you say okay, in spite of all of this brokenness, the suffering, the system, the processes over people, how did you uh, come up out of there and be what you are today? Well, thank you for saying that, but. I, I think I got through that. I know I got through this and because of my faith, huge faith, that we're doing the right thing. I also have had practice enough between the school and poverty and running a human services and being a probation officer to know you can't take on all things at all times. So by really focusing on just a few things and saying, this is where I'm going to go, and I also worked with the staff a ton because I'm going to leave. I wanted things to stay that are that these are nonpartisan issues. Mm-hmm. So I wanted things to stay and I wanted to be let the staff know that even though I was appointed politically, they were cared about. Mm-hmm. And that helped a lot. We and there was more prayer in DC during this administration. We had people from the White House would come over and pray with us. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you my favorite piece is I went out to go to the White House my first time, and you have a driver that takes you around to meetings in the district because there's never any parking, and et cetera, <laughs> and I didn't have a car. But <laughs> I get in the car, and he says, I have a feeling you're a woman of faith. I'm in the back seat of a big, one of those big black cars. And I said, okay, yes, I am. He said, can I pray for you? I'm a pastor. <laughs> comes to be my driver was a pastor. And so every time I went somewhere, we prayed. And he just kept me. I kept saying, the Lord is giving me an angel in the weirdest places. It's just <laughs> everywhere I went, somebody was wrapping around helping. And, and that's how I also, that when I said, I know this was God's will, he wrapped me around with so many angels. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I know we can do this. We cannot be the government. We have to be nonprofits and faith-based groups and corporate. You know. Why can we not be the government? Government alone cannot do this. If they did, the numbers wouldn't still be going up. So what is the role of government? I think the role of government, let's use these kids for an example. If we get 127,000 kids, 117, whatever the number is, into forever homes, and we've reduced the numbers coming in, 
those that are left that are really, really difficult and need a lot of help, government is the right place. For those individuals who have disabilities that forever will need some government assistance, that's the right place. For the family that's making 190, 230% of poverty, the government should be that quick, help you out, and then help you move like a trampoline mm-hmm. to the next step. Then the community picks that up. But I don't. I think we've seen this. As government handles everything, our numbers get worse, and our families are hurt, and we only respond to crisis. And people in government know that, too. They just don't know how to get out. They don't know how. And, you know, here's another example, and this is why I think it was easier for me is that I practiced this learning by listening to those I served. Mm -hmm. Somebody who lost their job knew they were going to not be able to pay rent, went to go get help. And until the crisis happens and you're two weeks late with your rent, you can't get the help. But by then the landlord is kicking you out. Mm -hmm. And then so we wait for crisis, which is like waiting for the heart attack to happen Mm -hmm. before we deliver Mm -hmm. the services. Mm -hmm. And that's how we operate. So by reducing red tape and reducing the compliance versus the outcome, I assure you, if you get to a successful outcome for a vulnerable person, Mm -hmm. you're going to be compliant unless you didn't cross a T or dot an I. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where you just need to move forward yeah. and help, but not wait till crisis. So when someone says, I think I'm going to be evicted because I lost my job and I know I won't have a paycheck because I fell off the roof mm-hmm. doing HVAC systems and I broke my ankles, believe them. Mm-hmm. They're not making this yeah. up. Mm-hmm. And maybe the 1% that want to fraud the system it's not worth messing with the 99% that could get up and out. Good question. We don't yeah. want to keep them stuck in a spider web. Right. Wow. Well, yeah. you, so, you so, can tell you hit on one of my real. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, you, you, you've been in the front row seat of uh, the biggest human services organization in the world, probably. Um, not only the front row seat, you were running it. You've seen the assets and the liabilities of it. You've come out of this identifying the role of it but saying it's not the answer. And then the answer lies within the nonprofits, the, the faith-based community. And so where does that take you now? And uh, what, uh, you know, some people say, well, I, I, I've got that on my resume. I was the uh, assistant <laughs> to the secretary of administration for HHS, but in fact, I ran the organization uh, right next to the president. But now you're on the ground again, um, going to battle, not just in maybe one location, but nationally, maybe even beyond that at some point. So uh, there's just a ton of questions rolling in my mind. So what brings you to Kansas? You know, what's, what's, uh, what's this? I mean, you were divinely appointed into Washington. You've been divinely appointed all your life, obviously. Um, what's the point of being in Topeka, Kansas? You know, people are listening to our community, our mission, and going, wow, you brought in a heavyweight here from, <laughs> from D.C. Um, why here? Why not? Because you have the people, the heart of America in Kansas, you have people who care about kids, people who care about making a difference, people about changing. Um, Governor Kelly did tell me she was all in for kids. Good. I believe her. Good. And I, I was excited mm-hmm. that she wanted to make a difference for kids. But as you're working throughout the country, I'm from Colorado. Kansas is my neighbor. Mm-hmm. So I love that. Mm-hmm. And that's what one piece that brought me here. The... I met some people that absolutely believe in this mission and these kids. And I've been in several other states since I've been home. It all started with one boy who I met in Indiana Mm -hmm. who said he was at Indiana State. And because of COVID, he had to move out. 
he couldn't go back to his foster home because he'd aged out. COVID happened, and the foster parent was very concerned that he'd been on campus and around people and he might have COVID. Didn't have the money for a laptop in order to continue to take online classes. Three years, computer science, good grades. So he calls and he says, I don't know if you remember me, Assistant Secretary, but I'm going to Los Angeles to reinvent myself. And can I stop at your house on the way? And I said, okay, but I have boxes everywhere. I've only been home two days. <laughs> and I'm practically on my knees praying, saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? I thought this is where you wanted me to be. What now? And I kept hearing, you met so many wonderful people. Use that for these kids. Then Deshaun calls. And he comes to my house. And I, he ended up staying a while and got to know my son. They want to go do 14ers and hike and be in the mountains and camp. And then he left. And he left some things. And I called him and I said, you know, your coat and stuff's here. Is there a place I could mail it to you? He said, no, I'll get it when I come home. And my husband said, I think we have just been adopted. Well, he started talking to other aged out kids. Hey, we can go to Lynn's, have a sleepover retreat, and we can go and climb and fish and do all these things. And she's going to set it all up. And next thing you know, from August 12th to 15th, I had 20 kids who had aged out. Literally a few who walked in the door and said, you're not going to um, really like me very much because I'm, I'm nobody likes me. I've been adopted three times with failed adoptions. And, oh. you know, they told me I'm just not like likable or adoptable. And I hate adoption. I hate that you're trying to do this. And But I'm here. Mm-hmm. And another kid said to me, he said, I Googled you. I really looked for a reason not to like you, but I'm here. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, welcome. <laughs> So as the kids came, they taught me. They taught me what what it was like to truly say, I've been told I'm not adoptable. I'm not worthy of a parent. I've lost three families through failed adoptions, which is a real issue for me. We have to do better. That should not be happening. And so as I'm working with these kids, one young man asked me if I would do a men's retreat. And I kind of joked with him and said, do I look like a guy? And he said, seriously... I need to know how to be a godly man. I need to know how to love a wife. I need to know how to take care of children. I don't want to do to my children what happened to me. And he said, um, then I was put in a white foster home. I'm African-American, and I want to be good to my wife and my children, but I'm not sure that I have a role model because I was the foster home was a single mom. So as we looked at that, I then went out and was in Oklahoma and met some people and went to um, Spring Valley Ranch. And right there, I said, this is the dude ranch. This is for the guys. Called up this kid and said, we're on. And another young boy said, would you teach us how to tie a tie? Would you teach us how to change the oil? Do something for us so that we can. How do you treat a girl on a date? So I was really... um, (sighs) taken aback that they were literally asking for this. So those same boys are putting this together. They're doing the curriculum. It'll happen in May. 20 young men, 20 men that have been successful in their lives that could help share. And then on my way home from there, I had several more calls, people saying, I think um, I heard you're doing these retreats. Would you want to do one in West Virginia? What about Georgia? What about Arizona? And I joked with my husband. I said, um, God's got it raining ranches. <laughs> so um, we, he'll take care of this. The means will come. People will support us. I think we need to take care of these kids. It's a niche. Very few people are in this 
taking care of the kids who aged out. So why the term all in fostering futures? First part is all in because I started that in D.C. where I wanted every governor to be all in for America's kids. And I want every football player and every basketball player and every pastor and every doctor and every stay-at-home mom, every single person in this country should be all in for kids, whether it's zero to three-year-olds to make sure they have brain development, whether it's early childhood, whether it's quality schools, whatever it is, be all in for our kids in America, then these issues, we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's the most important for Mm -hmm. all in. Mm -hmm. And the kids love it. They keep saying, are you all in? All in. And we do our cheer. And then fostering futures is what we're doing. We have now added a piece where we're looking at, um, we've had donors. Um, Melania Trump has agreed to help find um, donations for us so that we can get kids scholarships. They can go to school. They can get IT. They are, she has stepped up. She loves these kids. She truly is dedicated to them. So she has said she would help. And so we are going to help them not only get that base. Uh, Let me add one piece. The kids at the end of being at my house lit a unity candle together to be chosen family. And it was emotional. There were tears. It was hard. Um, Hard good. And then they actually came back to Colorado to another person's house they met and did Thanksgiving. And as they were having Thanksgiving, they made my husband and I sit down to watch this video. And I said, what are you up to? And they said, well, don't you people with families do family home videos on holidays? Here's ours. I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And one of the young boys wrote a blog. He's from Arizona. And he said, usually the phone gets turned off before Thanksgiving and on again in January because we don't do holidays. We don't have anyone to do holidays mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And now, because of these retreats, we have chosen family. And we will never have to turn our phones off again. And so that's what I'm doing. And some people say, why, are we, why do you want people to support you? For a party for kids, this is not a party for no. kids. We did, we gave them back dignity, joy, love. We're helping heal the brokenness. The last piece that I did was I have in my office, they all signed my wall as a commitment from me that they always have a place to sleep. Now, we've, we're up to hundreds of kids, so it's going to be real interesting. They all want to come. <laughs> 20 was tough. But, but this is what we're doing, and we need help from all over the country to find the boys and find the girls. We're doing girls' retreats, and we're doing the co-ed retreats. We can do as many retreats as we're funded for, and we'll keep moving. And I think this is God's will. Um, James one twenty seven: pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress yes. and refusing to let the world corrupt you. There is not one place in the Bible that says you can take care of the children if you feel like it. It is a requirement to take care of God's children. No matter it's not what, a suggestion. it's not a right. suggestion. I wanted to count how many phrases are in the Bible that talk about you will take care of children. Mm-hmm. I had to give it up because it is throughout it's the entire Bible. It is yeah. what Jesus said. Yeah. You know, Lynn, uh, at the rescue mission, um, we've taken on the task as we've been assigned to um, be at the uh, bottom of this the river um, of vulnerability, uh, people who are broken. Um, uh, because we have not done very well upstream. And so we uh, have individuals here who, well, some people that are staying with us in their 80s, 
um, who have been broken all their lives. And what you're talking about is going upstream, not totally upstream to the prevention of people going into foster care, although that's a huge one, Um, but to catch those kids coming out of that system before they end up in prison, before they end up on the streets, before they end up in homeless shelters, under the bridge, um, victims of trafficking, (laughs) which is uh, huge to us as well, Lynn. Thank you for that. And, And so you're an incurable optimist. Thank God for you. Um, God has put you in strategic places. Um, one of the reasons you're here today is a, a mutual good friend, Doug Hinkle. Uh, Doug's been on the podcast before, and uh, and uh, you got connected with uh, with Doug um, and myself with uh, General Julie Bentz. Absolutely. Uh, retired two-star general who's been the speaker at the Kansas Prayer Breakfast, uh, who was advisor to both President Bush and Obama on uh, nuclear matters, which would be very important today especially. Um, and you're connected all over this country and you you are now plowing the ground for a whole new way of looking at things. Do you feel the enormity of that calling? Absolutely. But it's one of those things. And this has been, I've been in government all my life and have had challenges in trying to change culture. This is the hardest I've ever, the hardest thing I've ever done. Changing the culture, creating a movement, not a project. Loving up these kids because the kids... When they get too much love, it's hard on them. Sometimes there's some real triggering that goes on, and and I want to say, what I do wrong? And I learn from it, and I help them, and we work together. I do with them, not for them, ever. It's all dignity for me and and letting them know that Jesus loves them. But a lot of the kids have a real hard time with with God. Why did this happen to me? Why was I assaulted all my life? Why was I homeless? Why did my dad not love me? Why... And some abuse in homes where they profess to be Absolute. Christ followers and they were not following Christ. Absolutely. And that's a big one. Yeah. So I think that's where when we go into churches, we adequately train so that people that volunteer to adopt really know how hard it's going to be, especially if you take a child that's been abused already. And then moving forward, this has been, there have been my days when I've looked at my husband and said, I can't do this. And he says, yes, you can Interestingly, all three of my kids have said, we're going to help you with this because we think it's the right thing. My daughter wrote the bylaws and the articles of incorporation. My son says, okay. I'm your volunteer CFO. Thank you. <laughs> if I just had somebody that could help me with technology more, I am so bad. So, you, there. you know, the hard things, are, how do I print cards? How do you get letterhead? Those are things I just have not had to really work, worry about for back in my day. There was carbon paper to make things, you know, with just whatever we do. So this has been hard. And it's been frustrating. And there have been people who said, are you getting paid for this? And I'm like, no, I don't need to be. Why not? What are you doing? How are you paying your bills? And I'm thinking, that's the last thing you should be thinking about. How about how tired are you? The kids <laughs> don't call until 11 at night when they're thinking about their lives. you know. And, the, and you want to be there for them. So that's been the biggest thing. I keep saying, pray that I keep my strength and that this keeps working. But it's I have been down and I've been up. I know that. And um, But... Yeah. You've the got, support's been good. You've got a huge undertaking here, Lynn. Um, you know, Jesus, uh, I always look at Jesus as a change agent. Um, status quo wasn't too cool with him, still isn't. Right. And somehow the humanity of ourselves, we get into regulation yeah. and laws and and death uh, through the law. And when I say that, I mean, there's no life in it. Um, and you've seen that side of it. Mm-hmm. You've seen the life side of it. You've seen what the power of it can be when we do follow what God has called us to do with loving people in front of us. So Lynn, 
I just want to say thank you um, for, I mean, we got a chance to talk here a few months ago over the phone and, and uh, got a little understanding of what you were doing at that point. But to see you in person, to see this passion, uh, two things before we close today. One is, what are you doing the next few days in Topeka, Kansas? What are you hoping to accomplish uh, here? And then how can people join you? Absolutely. The um, What I'm doing is I'm meeting people and I'm asking questions about Kansas and what the numbers are. I know that and that we could do better. And there's no state that we can't do better in. And so that's not a negative on Kansas. Kansas has the heart, I said that earlier, with people wanting to make yeah, things good, better good for for um, the kids and families. But sometimes this is the most complicated system. And I think sometimes it's complicated on purpose. And caseworkers mm. are tired. And so I want to do two things. I want to really encourage a caseworker support month in October mm -hmm. to have everybody love up on caseworkers and starting oh, now good. and do this until October and just let caseworkers know they are first line responders. There is nobody that um, isn't important when they're, when they're doing this work. It's hard. And it's interesting throughout the country as all the first line responders were getting the PPE and the other things for COVID. They didn't think about these people who have to walk into the homes of very difficult situations and, and maybe remove a baby or a child, and they needed PPE. So we were working on changing those laws. So that's the first thing is just remember the caseworkers. Yes, because they have their own trauma, secondary oh, trauma. Secondary trauma. Secondary trauma, trauma and it yeah. changes it's, them. Uh, we're dealing with that here at the Rescue Mission yep. through our trauma-informed care. And we are definitely losing caseworkers mm -hmm. right now. It's every place I've been, they said, we cannot staff. We don't have the staff, yes. which now the workload's worse. Another yes. reason to focus on these two things. I firmly believe in 24 months we will have a system half its size if we do this right. So that's one. Mm -hmm. And the other piece is to bring people together to say, how can I help? Even if you're real close to not having silos in the work that you do, how can I help you build team in a different way. Sometimes it's easier when someone comes from the outside mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then I can leave and they can be mad at me, not at each other. <laughs> and so and I was like, what did she say? Well, that made sense. <laughs> Maybe and and how can I serve? All yeah. I want is to serve. I'm yeah. not here to come take over. In fact, I want to leave. I don't want to stay. I just want to help start. Mm -hmm. And so the States I've been in, it's been wonderful. And like I said, I used two States that I started in when I was still in DC and they're doing fantastic yeah. work, but I, it's working. When you see only 400-some kids in both those states, yeah. 36 in New Hampshire, we're doing something right. So let's keep that going because at the end of the day, then the money can be reinvested on the front end, mm -hmm. and we can right. help these families be strong. And when you help families be strong, take away child welfare. Mm -hmm. We reduce human trafficking. We reduce domestic violence. We reduce unemployment. Mm -hmm. We reduce suicides. All the other ills of society based on these two things can be touched. Some people have been in the system a long time and say, well, Lynn, that's nice, but it's really a pipe dream. You don't see it that way. Absolutely not, because it's focused. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing it work. I'm seeing the actual numbers go down. So... Um, do I think it's perfect? Uh, nothing's perfect. Nothing. And I do think that there's people that really exist to keep the system in operation. And we're not. Explain that just a minute. I, you get paid to do this work. Mm -hmm. You say, this will never change. It never has. And that's that, okay, so maybe it's the person whose glass of milk is always half empty. Mm -hmm. That just do not believe you can make change happen because you can't see through the whole smoky chaos that has been created for hundreds of years. So it's not Some a new thing. people call it Poverty Incorporated. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah. if you've been told you're a number, mm -hmm. 
from the time you're born, your kids are a number, your grandparents are a number, you have no name, you're not, you haven't been allowed to think, you've been told how to fill out the papers, how to do school, and you don't even do well there, and they kick you out. You are, do you think that right. even you could get out of poverty? Right. And that's why we did the school, it was all about them learning to critically think and have the ownership of their own decisions. So you're not just talking about economic poverty, though. You're talking about emotional poverty, all intellectual poverty, spiritual poverty, environmental poverty, all those kind of different poverties. We think of economics as the only poverty line. But you're talking about you've got to address the emotional, intellectual, the relational people that are void of those particular healthy aspects of their life, spiritual. Every bit of it. Because you, you, you have to go the whole gamut, and that's what you're doing. Yeah, I haven't met anybody that makes it up and out of poverty without community support or, or another person. Yeah. Isolated by yourself, I haven't seen it work. Mm-hmm. And the other piece, as you start to move up and out, people that are still stuck aren't really happy about that. Mm-hmm. And so you opt to be in community and, and stay poor, or you opt to move into maybe a middle-class neighborhood where you don't fit in. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that connection? And that's why I did it in groups. And we do school in groups. Um, we had a great community college in Colorado that took our groups and they brought the teachers to the Head Start so the parents can drop off their kids and take a class. And so we learned that together, they're stronger on that end. We did it with offenders too, as they came out of prison. So as we work with people, we would know now some of the key things is one, them together, Mm -hmm. and then them moving forward together and us sitting in that passenger seat. And until they ask us if they made a wrong turn, we don't say anything. Mm -hmm. And letting them drive is really a big deal for dignity. So you're here now to fan some flames that have already started, a little bit of a fire fostering the cause being one of those, uh, Jared and Lamanda Broyles uh, involved with that and others. Uh, here, but you're also here to start some fires. I hope so. And, uh, and get, get them burning hot. So how can people, Lynn, join you in your efforts with this assignment that God has given you now that is called All In Fostering Futures? I think the first most important thing is they know how to contact you or Doug Hinkle or Fostering the Cause or so many that I have met who said, we want to help with this and just say, how can I help? What can I do? Everybody can do something. They may not want to adopt. They may not want to foster, but they can make a meal for a struggling family, mow the lawn, drive kids to school. Well, that's so complicated, Lynn. Can we do, <laughs> don't we have to really go and, and think about that one a while? You no. Have, you actually do have to think about it, but then you actually have to do it. Oh, do go it. do it. Oh, that's the hard action, part. Action. And that's this right. is a call to action. It's to dare greatly. Okay. It's to move into that into that movement the race for the cure for breast cancer started with just one run, mm-hmm. and now it's everywhere. And we're, we know we're conquering breast cancer. This is like that. I want every single person to be all in. West Virginia says they're all in West Virginia. Yes. I love that. And they are making changes in a huge way. I want every state to say, if they can call it whatever they want, I don't own this, but they to say we made a difference for kids. Mm-hmm. And it's better now. And when someone looks you in the eyes and says, how are the kids in Kansas? You can say, oh, my gosh, they're so good. Yeah. That's what I want. Yeah. And, you know, it's so beautiful about this. We talked about the situation. You've, you've been sharing the situation, and it sounds so complicated. And yet, our actions don't have to be. Right. We can make a difference through simple things that then kind of whittle away at the complexities of, of the situations. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's just beautiful. 
Yeah, absolutely. You, you are both doing such wonderful work. It's so exciting yeah, to be here. We're all we're on the same team yes, here. We are. Uh, Lynn, one more uh, opportunity for you here on this podcast, our community, our mission, is to say something to the churches who are listening right now. What would you say? The churches are absolutely critical. Get out of your four walls mm-hmm. and do church in the community, and call us and look on my website www.allinfosteringfutures.org. Which will be on, uh, we'll post that on this Facebook. Mm -hmm. And we will help you. We have got books on things churches can do from the small to the large. We've got trainings. We've got trainers. We can help you pull together support groups. We can help you do it so that it's not hard. It can be so simple. How do you get those meals? Who takes them to who? How do you find the struggling people? I, I... Some of them don't walk into church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so how do you do that? And we can help you. And the other thing we've said is if you're a church that's heavily resourced, resource those smaller churches that maybe get $5 in the basket. Mm -hmm. We looked at zip codes in a state and found where the highest removal rates were. Working with government, they helped us do this. Mm -hmm. And we found the highest removal rates. And they were in the urban sites, but mostly in the rural sites where they're isolated. And as we looked at those zip codes, we then plotted where are the churches. And there were churches in every community, but they weren't well-resourced because these are poor communities. Right. Large churches help resource those small small churches. Don't take over. Just help them get volunteers. Help them have the funds to buy a mattress for a child. Help them do those things. Churches can work together, and I think that's really very critical and I do think that's starting to happen in Kansas, so that's exciting to me, too. That is. Well, Lynn, thank you for being with us today on Our Community, Our Mission. We just are so delighted that you're here in Topeka and me in too. Kansas and what you're doing nationally. Um, Lynn Johnson, coming from working on the ground as a parole officer um, years ago, all the way to directing HHS for this, the whole nation, uh, working out of the White House, and now on the front lines again of working with um, kids, um, not just policy not just ideas, not just vision, but actually you're doing it. And then you're encouraging other people to join you in that. And so if you're interested in more information about All In Fostering Futures and how you can get involved, you can uh, look at our uh, post here on this Facebook account. And, and Lynn, we just we want to be involved with you. We uh, This is exciting. We like game changers. And uh, we, we love your passion so much. And so thank you again for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Kansas. Amen. So if you'd like some more information about Topeka Rescue Mission, you can go to trmonline.org. That's trmonline.org. And do take a look at All In Fostering Futures. It's a game changer. And that's what we're really all about here on our community. Our mission is we're examining issues and we're saying, what can we do about it that makes a difference? And that's what you've heard today with Lynn Johnson. So thank you for listening to Our Community, Our Mission.